This podcast is supported by the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, one of America's leading research medical schools. Icon Mount Sinai is the academic arm of the eight-hospital Mount Sinai Health System in New York City. It's consistently among the top recipients of NIH funding. Researchers at Icon Mount Sinai have made breakthrough discoveries in many fields vital to advancing the health of patients, including cancer, COVID, and long COVID, cardiology, neuroscience, and artificial intelligence. The Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. We find a way. This week's episode is brought to you in part by the Eppendorf and Science Prize for Neurobiology. Are you or one of your colleagues doing great neuroscience? If so, then we encourage you to apply for the prestigious Eppendorf and Science Prize for Neurobiology, an international prize which honors young scientists for outstanding neurobiological research based on methods of molecular, cellular, systems, or organismic biology. Submissions are due June 15th. Visit science.org slash Eppendorf to apply today. Welcome to the Science Podcast for June 27th, 2014. I'm Sarah Crespi. In this week's show, we talk about following the pollen path. And David Grimm is here with a roundup of stories from our daily news site. Support for the Science Podcast is provided by AAAS, the American Association for the Advancement of Science, advancing science, engineering, and innovation throughout the world for the benefit of all people. AAAS, the Science Society, at www.aaas.org. The world of odors is complex, mixtures of aroma molecules floating on the wind. So how do insects discriminate scents important to them, like those from a food source, from the background cacophony of volatile chemicals emitted by plants, animals, and polluting humans? Using the model moth Manduca sexta, Jeffrey Riffle and colleagues investigate how it homes in on target odors and the effects pollution might have on this interaction. These pollinators like bees, moths, or butterflies, they navigate to patches of flowers using their sense of smell. And what we found is that the scent from the neighboring vegetation, but also these pollutants from like car exhaust, can actually disrupt this behavior. And so for these moths that are flying long distances, they can't adequately smell the flowers. And so even if they're close to the flower patches, they won't even know that they're there. So why has this been such a tough question to answer? Why, what makes it hard to figure out what's going on with odor tracking in moths? You know, part of the problem has been the ability to sample the chemical environment around us in the air at time rates equivalent to what the moths are actually experiencing as they're flying around. But also these volatiles are occurring at really low concentrations, and so we really need to have the ability to measure these volatiles at, at these trace levels, but also at really high sample rates. So what exactly does the moth do to find its target flower? Number one, it detects the flower. This is actually really amazing because these flowers, like when you smell a rose, it actually emits almost like 400 chemicals in its bouquet. Mm -hmm. In the case of these flowers that the moths are going to, Datura ridei, it emits about 60 chemicals in its bouquet, and the moth is actually only sampling or recognizing about three of those chemicals. And it's doing this in a really complex background of neighboring vegetation, of volatiles from neighboring vegetation. 
The other problem, though, is that, again, the moth is flying around really quickly, and it needs to sample or sniff the odor environment very fast in order to locate these flowers. You experimented with the frequency of odor pulses, you know, letting out a little bit of odor at a time at a specific rate. Why might that metric be important for this? Yeah, the odor is actually, once it is emitted from the flower, gets mixed and becomes really patchy due to the turbulent air motion. But the moth is also flying around really fast, and so it has to be able to really sample quickly the odor environment. And it's actually doing this because once it encounters a patch of odor, it'll orient with respect to the wind direction and move upwind. If it doesn't come into encounter with the odor patch again, then it will begin to search moving crosswind. The rate of which it's encountering the odor is really important for the moth to keep on moving upwind to find the flower. If it's too low of a, a rate of encounter rate, it'll move crosswind. But if alternately, if it's too high, it'll also move you know, crosswind. So there's a sweet spot in terms of the frequency of its encounter of these odor patches. Now, are the flowers emitting the smell in a patchy or pulsing way, or is it just that's kind of the way aromas are in the air? If you ever watch cigarette smoke or an incense stick, the smoke will actually kind of plume up, and then it will get broken up due to the air motion. And so the same thing is happening to the flower scent. It's just given off, it's wafting off, and then it becomes mixed and diluted due to the turbulent air motion and movement. So you also look closely at the effect of background volatiles on odor tracking by moss. How did you set that up, and then what did you see when you, when you measured it? By taking our measurements in the field, what we saw is that the odor background really kind of masks the scent of the flowers. And this is a really tough problem to recreate these conditions in nature. So what we did is we went back into the laboratory and we have this really large wind tunnel where we could, number one, fly these moths around. And these moths are relatively big. They're four, almost five inches across in their wingspan. And so we could actually fly these moths in these really large wind tunnel and we could recreate these same conditions that occur in the field. And we could test different backgrounds and test different flower odor plume frequencies or dynamics. And so what did you learn about their ability to distinguish the odors from the background? It was really interesting. When the flower was actually emitted at a kind of optimal frequency, in clean air, the moths had no problem at all. They zoomed up wind and located the flower. By contrast, certain odor backgrounds really disrupted their ability to find these flowers. Now, these natural fragrances like creosote bush disrupted the moth's ability to locate the flower, but also some of these chemicals that also occur in the flower fragrance like benzaldehyde really altered the ability of the moths to localize the flower, and also chemicals that are structurally similar to those same chemicals that occur in the flower that are also given off by car exhaust had the same effect. The moth had a really hard time locating the flower. So Expanding on that, you know, you're talking about car exhaust. Would human pollution be a big factor in interfering with this interaction between a moth and its target plant? You know, it potentially could be. We tested concentrations equivalent to, say, really high concentrations that are unrealistic. Uh, we tested also concentrations that we measured on a street corner. And those intensities of these volatiles that are given off by the car exhaust did have an effect and really disrupted the moth's ability to locate the flower. 
one of the important things that we did is that this is just under really short time frames where we're just exposing the moth to these backgrounds in the wind tunnel. But if we have the moths embedded in the environment for a long time, they kind of adapt to the scent. And under those conditions, it further disrupted their ability even more so. So the moths that could be flying around in an urban environment would be affected even more. And this is an example of a one-to-one, a plant and its pollinator, or a plant and a moth that's looking for it. But there are other pollinators out there that have a lot of importance for crops. Is this finding generalizable to them? You know, that's what we're trying to find out. Number one, these results occurred in the laboratory with the moth, but we'd like to actually see if these same effects occur for other pollinators like bees and how the plants around, say, a crop plant might affect the bee's ability to recognize that crop plant that it's actually going to, or alternately how these volatiles from urban environments might be transported and affect farms neighboring these urban centers. That's something that we're really interested in pursuing. Jeff, thanks so much for talking with me. Thank you, Sarah. Jeffrey Riffle and colleagues write about odor discrimination in moths in this week's issue. Now we have David Grimm, the editor for our online daily news site. He's here to share some recent stories. I'm Sarah Crespi. First up, we have a story on the Neanderthal diet. Neanderthals have long been thought to be our carnivorous cousins, obligate meat eaters that may have been outcompeted by us because of our more flexible diet. But recently, evidence has been stacking up to suggest Neanderthals did indulge in an occasional leaf or shoot. So, Dave, What were some of the first hints of a greener diet for Neanderthals? Well, Sarah, there have been some recent studies on Neanderthals that lived in what is today Iraq, and there were studies done actually on the plaque and their teeth, and this indicated that these humans ate about as much food from plants as modern humans alive at the same time, and they also cooked barley grains. So some early evidence that they did consume vegetables. But those were Middle Eastern Neanderthals, so there's still some room to say that in northern climes, Neanderthals only ate meat until this new study. That's right. And one of the reasons researchers had thought that these Neanderthals in the northern climes would have just eaten meat or really focused primarily on meat is because they lived in this very cold environment, so they need this very revved-up metabolism. The idea is the only way you're going to do that is if you're eating a lot of meat. But as you say, Sarah, this new study goes against that. This was a uh, study done not on teeth, but actually Neanderthal fecal samples. This is actually the oldest fecal matter from humans ever analyzed, and these samples were somewhere between forty and 60,000 years old. They found these fecal samples in five different locations at a site in Spain. They analyzed them, and what they're looking for was chemical byproducts created by bacteria in the gut of these people, which indicate that plant matter was being processed, that it was being digested. And they actually found a lot of evidence for this, suggesting that the people that lived at this site, the Neanderthals that lived at this site, had a substantial amount of vegetables in their diet. Well, so how do they know that this was Neanderthal feces, not human feces or dog feces or something like that? Well, there's specific what they call biosignatures they're looking for aren't created by any other animal except for primates. And there's no evidence there were modern humans in this site at this time. There's also no evidence that there were any other types of primates in the site at this time. So that just leaves Neanderthals as the primary maker of these feces. Next up, we have a story on the temptations of tanning. 
I've often wondered why people tan despite the warnings about skin cancer. I get it that it's considered attractive as a look, but now researchers are suggesting that there might be more to it. Researchers are suggesting that tanning might be addictive. And the reason they're saying that is, first, there's some anecdotal evidence. There's been a real dramatic rise in skin cancers, almost 77% between 1992 and 2006 alone. Also, the tanning bed industry is growing extraordinarily fast, despite warnings that tanning can be bad for your health. Just because more people are tanning doesn't mean that it's not a trend. What suggests that this might be an addiction? Well, there's one intriguing piece of evidence that was collected before the study, and it's that tanners seem to experience withdrawal symptoms when they're given a drug that overrides the effect of opioids. And opioids are chemicals that are naturally produced by the body. They make you feel good. (laughs) Um, And it turns out when you disrupt that, people that uh, tan don't have as much of an enjoyable experience when they tan. Also, people that tan seem to be able to know the difference between when they're sitting on a tanning bed that's emitting true UV radiation and one that's not emitting UV light, suggesting that our bodies are somehow picking up on something about the light itself. Wow. They moved into mice and looked at what their response was to UV light. What did they find? Well, they didn't take the mice to the Caribbean, but what they did do is they gave them a daily dose of UV light for six weeks. It was about equivalent to what a light-skinned person would receive by lounging in the midday Florida sun for about 20 or 30 minutes. So, decent amount of tanning. And the team measured things like opioids, signs that the mice were feeling pleasure from the UV light. And they saw a lot of this. They saw an increase in levels of beta endorphin, which makes the mice feel good. They also looked at the mice's tail position. And it turns out that mice's tails are normally floppy, but they straighten out when they're on opioid drugs like morphine. And that's also what the researchers observed when the mice were exposed to UV light. And so that's a physiological effect. You see light exposure, you see a change in endorphin levels, other kinds of behaviors. But does this actually mean that tanning is addictive the same way drugs or tobacco are addictive? Well, addictive is in sort of the eyes of the beholder. But one expert says that when we talk about addiction, we talk about things like stealing TVs to get high so you can sell, uh, doing things that are, are very unhealthy for you otherwise just so you can feed your addiction. And there isn't a whole lot of signs that people that use tanning beds are going to those extremes. But the study does suggest that on some level there may be something that people are getting out of this activity besides a nice glow. Lastly, we have a story on what makes us move. So, Dave, would you move if there was an earthquake in your hometown or perhaps the temperature went up one degree? (laughs) Well, I grew up in California and we had a lot of earthquakes and we didn't move because of earthquakes. So I'm going to have to say no to that question. And it turns out I'm not alone, at least according to this new study. This is a study of people that live in Indonesia, and the researchers wanted to see what types of factors make people move. And they looked at things like increases of temperature, earthquakes, volcanic activity. And it turns out the things you think might make people move, like earthquakes and volcanoes, have much less of an effect than things like climate. So what kind of temperature changes are we talking about here? Well, for the temperature changes, we're talking about changes that are actually fairly subtle 
people that live in an area that maybe is about 25 degrees Celsius, the temperature going up by one or two degrees Celsius. And in those cases, you would tend to see people move or the researchers saw uh, a lot of Indonesian people move in those situations. If the temperature was below 25 degrees Celsius, they didn't see as much movement when the temperature increased a little bit. But it was when it got a lot hotter than that that they started to see people migrate away from the places that they were living. And this wasn't because people were suddenly slightly more uncomfortable because of the temperature? Well, they think it had more to do with higher temperatures can decrease crop yields, which is really bad for your income. So obviously, you're going to want to move to a place where you can support your family. And what does this suggest about the potential effects of climate change on Indonesia? Well, you know, researchers are really trying to figure out because especially in places like Indonesia, climate change is going to have some fairly dramatic effects, not only in terms of temperature, but things like rainfall. But Indonesia is also subject to earthquakes and volcanic activity. So the researchers want to know what's going to be moving human populations in the future. And because we are going to have a lot of climate change, especially in this area, the study suggests that we may see a lot of migration away from certain islands in Indonesia onto other ones. All right. So what else is on the site this week, Dave? Well, Sarah, we've got a story about finding not one, not two, but three supermassive black holes all in close quarters to each other. Also a story about whether prison is contagious. For Science Insider, our policy blog, we've got a story about attempts to beef up science education at black colleges. Also a story about, well, I'm just going to say one word, cyber dogs. So be sure to check out all these stories on the site. Thanks, Dave. Thanks, Sarah. David Grimm is the editor for our online daily news site. I'm Sarah Crespi. You can check out the latest news and the policy blog, Science Insider, at news.sciencemag.org. And that concludes this edition of the Science Podcast. If you have any comments or suggestions for the show, please write us at sciencepodcast at aaas.org or tweet to us at Science Magazine. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and many other places, or listen on the science site itself. The show is a production of Science Magazine. Jeffrey Cook composed the music. I'm Sarah Crespi. On behalf of Science Magazine and its publisher, AAAS, thanks for joining us.